Now imagine if you knew that you only had a few days to live. What would your prayers be like? That would be something that I would have thought gives your prayers focus, the very idea that you have a mere few days to live. What would you be praying for? Would you pray for healing and delivery to get out of this situation and live beyond those few days? Would you pray for your family and how they would cope without you? Well, Jesus' prayer was for his disciples and how they would cope, as well as for those who would believe through their, his disciples' ministry. And that obviously includes us. That's basically the rest of the church. It reveals this prayer, it reveals to us what it really means to be a Christian, the enormous privileges that come with it, but also the awesome responsibility it brings with it. Now, to sort of appreciate why this is happening, why Jesus is praying in this kind of way, it helps to have a little bit of context to read a few verses from a few chapters earlier in John. So that's what we will be doing. If you read through the whole Gospel of John, you can't help notice that near the end, the final handful of chapters are very much focused on the disciples. First, there was public ministry and teaching to the disciples, a mixture of those things nearer the end of the gospel end of Jesus's time on earth, the focus very much narrows in on the disciples and Jesus talking to them and now in our chapter praying for them. And the disciples were worried in verse, or chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot, cannot come. So he had mentioned this before that he would be going. He now repeats it. I will only be with you for a little longer. So understandably, the disciples are worried. They've been following Jesus for a number of years. They had given up their, their normal lives to travel with him through the country. They'd seen the opposition, and now Jesus says that he's going away. So that's obviously a very, very worrying thing. And in these chapters following that verse, Jesus explains to them, he reassures them, he tries to make them realize what the situation is really like. So let's read uh, chapter 14, just a few pages back, the first four verses. And, and we'll read a number of passages, just small sections, to give us an idea of the context that this prayer we've just read is set in. So the disciples are worried. Jesus is obviously aware of that. Then 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, 
would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So yes, Jesus says, I am going away, but that doesn't mean that we will always be separated. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and there eventually you will be with me. Which is fine, but also obviously in the future. Another thing he does is that he promises them the Holy Spirit for that time when he will not be physically with them anymore and they are not yet with him in this place he said he is going to prepare for them. So in the same chapter, chapter 14, we'll read a few verses from 15 onwards. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by me and my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. So they will not be left as orphans, sort of the most vulnerable group in society, which they might well have felt like with these repeated announcements that Jesus was going to go. But he will send them another advocate, another counselor, the Holy Spirit, to be with them, in a sense, to be the continued presence of Jesus with the disciples. Now, if you read these verses, then it should become clear that a lot of this is about the joint work of God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all working together, and these verses express that. Another few in chapter 14, 10 to 14, same idea. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So the disciples need to understand that what is happening is not just Jesus doing things on earth, Jesus being sent, Jesus being given a special job to do miraculous things, to teach, to disciple them. But they need to realize that this is actually a work of the whole Godhead. 
And when Jesus leaves, that is not from, oops, things went wrong, Jesus was murdered. But the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is jointly working here. And it's all planned and it's all in God's hand. Now when we talk about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it, it seems a bit confusing, at least to me. God is one, yet God exists in three persons. That's a little bit strange. And people over the years or centuries even have come up with all kinds of analogies to try and make sense of that. And I personally think those analogies don't tend to work very well. One of them, for instance, says, well, God in three persons, that's a little bit like water that can exist in three states. You can have solid water, ice, liquid water, like in my glass there, and in gas form, steam or vapor. And that's the same as with God, but no, it isn't. Because it's all still the exact same water. And if you just warm it up a little bit or vary the pressure a little bit, you can just change it from one state to the other. It's not that difficult to melt ice or to freeze water. But it's not that Jesus sort of, when he died and was resurrected, sort of changed states into the Holy Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the continued presence of Jesus with us, with the disciples, but it is a separate person in the Godhead. So those analogies, they try to illustrate things, but usually they fall short in one way or the other. So the nature of the Trinity is tricky. C.S. Lewis also has an analogy, but this is not an analogy for the Trinity to explain what the Trinity is like. It's in a sense an analogy to show us that we are simple people and God isn't simple. I mean, we think it was Tim's phrase, he is God, we are not. So how can we possibly expect to truly understand God? So Lewis doesn't try to say God exists in three states like water, but he said, no, our mind is just not equipped to deal with certain things. And the analogy he gives in uh, mere Christianity is to tell his readers, imagine you were to live in a two-dimensional world. So like on a flat world table, piece of paper, only two dimensions, so you can go left and right, forward and backwards, but not up and over, because you don't have a third dimension. So if something blocks your way, you can go to the side and then forward to try and move around it. But you can't jump or climb over it because you only have the two dimensions and going over it would be up, would be the third dimension. So you, you could draw shapes, you can have circles and triangles and squares, all in your two-dimensional world. And then Lewis says, now imagine that someone starts to talk to you about cubes. It's a little bit like a square, but it's in three dimensions. If you have a little bit of sort of imagination, you can see that for this person living in a two-dimensional world, that's kind of going to be mind-blowing. A shape that is like a 
square, but then it goes up. Well, what's up? I don't know what up is. I live in two dimensions. It's not going to be grasped by those two-dimensional people what on earth a cube would be. They can get hints. Yes, it is a little bit like a square, but it's more than that. Likewise, our minds are not two-dimensional minds, but they are limited, and God is unlimited. So it shouldn't really come as much of a surprise, sorry, shouldn't come as much of a surprise that we can't fully understand God or truly understand the nature of the Trinity. But we do know it exists. Just look at these passages. It talks about, or Jesus is talking. He speaks about his Father. He speaks about the Holy Spirit. Many other passages, even in the Old Testament, there it's more hints in the New Testament. is explicit. God exists in three persons. It's a little bit mind-blowing. Well, tough. Our minds aren't that big. So yes, they're going to be blown when we talk about things to do with the nature of God. But just like the two-dimensional person in, in Lewis's example can have some idea the cube is a little bit like a square, we can understand things of the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because the Bible teaches us about it. The Bible tells us things about it, about them, I should say, maybe. A few more verses from chapter 14, this time from 23 onwards. And again, it's this interaction between Jesus and the Father. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who has sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. And now the third person. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything. Everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This is all reassuring the disciples that God is in control. There is this great, big, elaborate plan which has been planned from eternity. And there is no hiccup that Jesus goes away. It's not a stumble, a fumble, a problem. God, in all three persons, is in control. And finally, before we actually turn to the passage, we're meant to be looking at a few verses from chapter 16, from 12 to 15. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. So this teamwork, this one person or three persons acting as one, 
because ultimately they are one. They are one God. So Jesus reveals the Father. The Holy Spirit will continue that revelation even after Jesus has left the earth, after his crucifixion, after his death. So now to our actual passage. Now Jesus isn't so much addressing the disciples. He's praying to the Father, but in, in full hearing of the disciples. So they will realize the kind of things that are being communicated between Father and Son. And he starts off with, with saying, I have revealed you, the Father, to those whom you gave me out of the world. So, the disciples are not just a bunch of people that decided to follow Jesus because it seemed like a good idea. It wasn't even a group of people who responded to a calling by Jesus because they thought that would be a good idea. No, they were given to Jesus by God. It's God's working, God's doing, given to Jesus by the Father. And Jesus, in turn, reveals the Father's name to them. And name here is much more than a convenient way to address someone. Oh, Martin, can you please help me to do this? Then Martin knows that I'm asking him. The rest of you know that you don't have to do it because I'm addressing Martin. That's all easy and convenient. Names are great and handy. But in the Bible, they also express something of the essence of a person. God's name is not just a name. It's something that expresses his character, his being, the kind of person that he is. And all of those things were revealed to the disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. How? Well, they could see it in Jesus. They could hear it in his teaching. And now they realize that all they have received through Jesus comes straight from the Father. So things, because of all Jesus' teaching in these final chapters of John, because of that, because the things he explains to them, the things that they had seen previously, now integrate with that, it all starts to fall into place for them, who Jesus actually is, and what this, this time in history where they are living actually means, what is happening. Surely it's not all fully clicked, Jesus said, well, the Holy Spirit will continue to make it clear. It's an awful lot to wrap your little puny human mind around, but the Holy Spirit is there to help them, to help us. And Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. So his prayer, he says here, is not for the world, it's for his disciples. But we must be careful to understand the reasons behind the exclusion of the world here. It's not that the world is rejected, that God doesn't care about the rest of the world and only cares about the disciples. But it is that 
as the disciples will months and years down the line from when Jesus was praying, when the disciples fulfill their calling, they will continue Jesus' ministry to the world. They will spread out, make disciples of all nations. They will start to fulfill that commandment that Jesus left them with. So that's why the disciples first, and therefrom it will radiate out. He asks for their protection. And the Greek translated here, protect them by the power of your name, can also mean keep them in your name. It's not just the protection from bad things happening to them. It's also keeping them centered on God, because that's the really important thing. Keep them in your name. Keep them belonging to you. Keep them loyal to you. Keep them in adherence to all those things that Jesus had revealed to them by word and deed. And the unity that Jesus desires for the disciples is something that can only come from being faithful to all those things that Jesus had taught and showed them. And the address, the way he addresses God in verse 11, Holy Father, shows two aspects of that relationship. Firstly, between Jesus and the Father, and then later, by extension, the disciples and the Father as well. Holy shows God's transcendence. He is separate. He is over everything else. But despite that, there is the intimacy of the relationship that Jesus can call him Father. And as we'll see in the prayer, that same intimacy is there for us. So moving on a little bit to verses 12 to 19. So far, sorry, I went ahead of myself there. You can't see that yet. 12 to 19, so far it's been Jesus who kept the disciples safe. And despite the hatred for them, they were kept safe. And now that he will leave them, he will not physically be present with them anymore. His prayer is that they will continue to be kept from the evil one. Not by being taken out of the world, but by divine protection in the midst of it. It's a natural reaction. We said the disciples were worried, they were anxious, they were scared. Well, if we are anxious and scared, it's a natural reaction to just hide yourself away somewhere. If the threat is physical, you might bolt the doors, close the windows, close the blinds, and just hide in the corner. If the threat isn't so much physical, but you still feel anxious, you, you might sort of withdraw and hide yourself away in other ways. But Jesus says, no divine protection in the midst of the world. But not just that. that. That seems like it's just protection from bad things. And that's all we can expect. But Jesus also talks about, have the full measure of my joy within them. That's verse 13. I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. When they realize what it is 
that God is creating here, what God is making possible, what he's enabling, this fellowship that is now there for the disciples and later for the ones who become disciples through their ministry. When they realize that, they will have joy. It's not just keep the evil one away. It's also the flip side, the positive side, this joy that fellowship with God can give them. But only when they are in the world can they fulfill their ministry. And it follows that the same then must be true for us as well. We should live our lives in the midst of the world with all that that entails and not try to withdraw into some safe cocoon. But we're not off the world. We are in the midst of it, but we're also separate. We are aliens, in a sense. We are, we need to be different. Jesus said they are to be sanctified or consecrated, separate from the world's ways. And the kind of life that his disciples should live needs to be a life in conformity with Jesus' revelation to them, a life dedicated to his service. And then they can be sent into the world. And Jesus says the basis for the disciples' sanctification lies in his own sanctification. Verse 19. Sometimes we tend to think sanctification means being made holy. And then you wonder, what is Jesus' sanctification? He was always holy. But sanctification has, has a sense of being set apart for something. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament that many Jews might have used at the time when Jesus was living, called the Septuagint, the same Greek word refers to setting aside for priestly or prophetic service. So sanctification is dedicating to something. It has a sense of sacrifice. It's a sense of setting apart for a particular purpose. And through Jesus' sacrifice, his sanctification, his living his life for a particular purpose, the disciples in turn can also be sanctified. And then in verse 20, the focus shifts from prayer for just the immediate disciples that were there with him and around him to all believers. My prayer, verse 20, is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And that then obviously includes us. So the focus widens for the church as a whole now. And he talks about unity there. So verse 20 and 21, 21, that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So we are not just a group of people that shares a common interest. And yes, obviously we're diverse, Men, women, young, old, retired, people who go to school, different 
social backgrounds, different interests, different politics, dare I say it, maybe different opinions on Brexit even. We are different. And yet we, we, are, we share a common interest. But it's, it's the unity that Jesus is talking about is, is way beyond sharing a common interest. Other groups and clubs in the world, running clubs, book clubs, photography clubs, share a common interest. There might also be a very diverse bunch of people, but they're all interested in running and fitness or reading books or doing photography. But we are here not just because we're all interested in gold and in the Bible. Jesus says it is much more than that. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father. What kind of oneness, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about. And that goes way beyond a shared interest. That's the kind of unity that we should have. Yes, we share interest in the Bible and Jesus, of course we do. But it is way, way more than that. It is partaking in the unity that exists within the Godhead, within the Trinity. That's what Jesus is praying for here. That's the glory that Jesus says that he has given us the glory to partake in the unity and fellowship of the Godhead. We are part of that special fellowship that exists between the persons of the Trinity. And it's the Holy Spirit that extends it to us. He is the presence of Jesus with us and in us. And that's why Jesus preceded this prayer with so much teaching on the Holy Spirit, some of those passages that we read at the very beginning. <coughs> and the purpose, or one of the purposes, is that the world will know that we are his, that God sent Jesus, and we are his community. So it is one purpose, is almost a cynical word, I feel, in this context, but one of the reasons God wants this is he wants this fellowship with his children. And another reason, I can't think of another word, is the outreach to extend more people in that fellowship in his kingdom. So Father, verse 24, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So there is fellowship on offer. Jesus is praying for that fellowship. That's what being a Christian means. Then the last two verses, Righteous Father, though the world doesn't know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus will continue to make his Father known to us and it's a continuing process also of us being made more like him. 
an increasing understanding of the love between the Father and the Son, an ever fuller grasp of the wonder that this love is now extended to each and every one of us, and an increasing responsive love from us to the Father as we are changed, as we are made more and more into the people that God created us to be, as we understand and appreciate and feel more and more that unity that Jesus is drawing us into, an increasing intimacy of fellowship. And again, it refers to the continuing work of Jesus in us through his spirit. Let me just reread a few of the verses we read in the beginning in chapter 14. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. That's the kind of thing we need to let sink in. That's what God has in store for us, what God has realized for us. So, in conclusion then, Jesus says that he sanctified and consecrated himself for us. And that refers, obviously, including his death for us. And if you have accepted that, if you're a Christian, then your life is a life of glory, whether you feel it, whether it looks like it from the outside or not, because we live our lives in fellowship with him. And of course, we're all aware that we don't always feel like this. Maybe we only rarely feel like it. Life's problems can make us despair, can make us lose that awareness. And that might mean that on occasion, certain points in our lives, we might need to have a change of perspective to remind ourselves in prayer who we actually are in the eyes of God. Our life, though it's lived in this world, shouldn't be judged by this world's standards. When we realize what Jesus has obtained for us, all other things melt into insignificance. What he has obtained for us is a life of unity, not just within the church, between believers, but between you and God also. It's not a unity that we produce by exercises. It's not an ecumenical unity where all churches come together and we're all one. It's not even a unity that is derived from church activities and meetings and fellowship dinners and house groups. All those things are, are great expressions of who and what we are as a church, all those activities. But the desire to meet is something that flows from the kind of unity that God has created. And we said earlier that is so different from just a shared interest, like in the cricket club. We are different than that. 
We are one with one another in the diversity, even if you don't agree with me on Brexit, it's trivial, we're still one. And that's why meeting together is something that can build us up, that can encourage us, even and particularly in those times where we might feel like locking ourselves away, hiding away in a corner. That's the worst thing you can do. If you're not doing well, go to church, meet with your brothers and sisters. And let's not forget another reason behind it. Verse 23, to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's that love that will make the preaching of the gospel successful. It's not a dry academic exercise where it's just presented in a correct way. But if it comes from a church where people can see that things are different, the way that we interact with one another is different, that's where the gospel will succeed. Amen. Shall we close by singing one more song together? Purify my heart, let me be as gold and precious silver. <laughs>